Sisyphus defends him again. And then some Jews take an oath upon themselves that they're going to kill Paul before they ever eat again. And Claudius Lysias is informed of this conspiracy. So he sends Paul to Caesarea, which was the seat of government of the Romans in that part of the world, to the governor Felix, and sends a letter explaining things in his own way that would make him look good. And that's, that's a subject for another story. But if you'll read Claudius Lysias' letter to Felix, you'll find him describing himself in rather glowing terms when, in fact, he's not telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth in his letter. But then we come to chapter 24, where Felix, the governor appointed by the Romans, he's a Roman, Felix, has called together the, the high priests and those representatives from Jerusalem that want to accuse Paul, and he's called Paul together, and he wants to hear the matter so that they can decide what to do with Paul. And I want to take up in the first verse of chapter 24. Now these Jews have brought with them an eloquent orator that they might accuse Paul. And that's where we take up in the first verse of Acts 24 as Felix is hearing, is overseeing this hearing. And after five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders. It says descended because Jerusalem is high. And he came to a lower altitude. If you look at a map, you'll know why that needs to be explained, because he went north. And with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always, and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came upon us, and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, for as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues, nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now after many years, 
I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee, and object if they had aught against me, or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And that's where I want to end for this moment. Well, let's observe a few things. Here we've looked, we've looked at the context of this hearing before Felix, the Roman governor, when he's accused of the Jews by Tertullus. I hope you can see it. The Bible records a rather eloquent, short, speech by Tertullus, and believe me, this is, when you read in, in uh, verses uh, 2 and 3 that we Jews enjoy great quietness and very worthy deeds are done by thy providence, and we accept it always and in all places with all thankfulness, that it was not the spirit of the Jews toward their Roman conquerors. Right. But Tertullus anyway is presenting as eloquent of a speech as he can to condemn Paul. But when Paul gives his defense, I hope as we read it, and in the first several verses, beginning at verses 10 through 13, I hope that if we are ever called in question, we can have the same answer that I am innocent of all charges, which is what Paul was. Would that be the case if we were ever put on trial where men were trying to find something wrong with our lives, would we be innocent as Paul was? Can, have we, do we, will we? conduct ourselves as carefully as Paul did so that he could say that they can't prove anything of what they're accusing me of. In verse 14, I read that Paul wasn't ashamed to confess that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. Is that true of your heart? Are you almost proud of the title of heretic, as most in this city would call us? as most that we have ever known would call us, heretics. Paul said, I freely confess that after the way they call heresy, that's the way I worship God. Even though those were the Jews that were God's people, they considered Paul to be a heretic, but he wasn't ashamed of that because he was worshiping in truth according to the scriptures, which he goes on to say, So worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law, and in the prophets. He was a heretic, but he wasn't ashamed of it because he was going to stand on the word of God regardless of what men might call him or accuse him of. I hope we would do the same. I hope we're not ashamed of being called heretics for our position on a number of subjects. He then says that he has hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, this is in verse 15, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Now, the Sadducees denied any resurrection because they denied the spirit. All they saw was a body when they looked at a man. And they denied angel, spirit, and resurrection. But Paul said, and he's agreeing here with the Pharisees, or the Pharisees agreeing with him, that he had hope toward God. And when you, when you look at a man like Paul defending his life, he brings up the fact that he has hope based on the resurrection. 
Now, we heard a sermon on that subject a few weeks ago, a few months ago, that that is the great Christian hope. And it ought to be one of the fundamental principles governing our lives, and that is hope toward God by a resurrection. This life is not all there is. In fact, this life is a very small and insignificant part of all there is. But there's going to be a resurrection. And that hope in God ought to characterize true believers. It ought to be a governing factor and influence in our lives. And here Paul is admitting that. We'll have more to say on that resurrection in, in a few minutes. But in verse 16, he has this also that he can say. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. You know, there's a great deal of emphasis in our society, in our nation, in our own lives sometimes on physical exercise. You know, Paul once said in another place, bodily exercise profiteth little. But here he says, I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. You know, it says of Jesus Christ that he grew in favor with God and men. It also says that of the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament. And here's Paul's testimony that he had a conscience void of offense. Do you and do I go through life at every occasion? And you're going to have many occasions today. Every occasion doing doing what is right, conducting ourselves in a way that leaves no bad conscience toward God or toward men. No offense toward God or toward men. Every day, every event, Paul said he could do that. I mean, that'd be pretty nice to be able to stand on trial and be able to say that about yourself. He said that in another place, and the high priest Ananias was so upset with such boldness that he had him slapped. But I hope that we could be as bold. I hope that we could honestly be as bold. That at every event, in every day, we are without offense in our conscience toward God and toward men. What a testimony. And I hope that we would desire such a thing ourselves. In verses 17 through 20, he then brings up the fact again that he had done nothing worthy of this trouble and that he was not guilty of the crimes they were accusing him of. And that is good that he had a clean reputation there. Then he comes to the 21st verse, and he admits his craftiness in dividing the previous council that he had been in in bringing up the subject of the resurrection. Now, he, Paul is very wise. And the scripture, and Paul himself tells us that we ought to be harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. And Paul was very wise. He divided a council that was against him by bringing up a subject that he knew would cause division. And here he brings it up again before Felix because he also understood that Felix knew the doctrine. Not necessarily believed it, but understood it. Because when we come to verse 22, we read that when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way. Do you know what the truth is called in this verse? That way. That way, that heretical way of worshiping God. Felix knew some about it. He knew that it would divide the Jews because of the Sadducee-Pharisee problem. And therefore, he understood what Paul had done in the previous council. And so he defers the Jews, saying, I'm not going to do anything today. I'm going to wait till Claudius Lysias can be here, and then we shall get to the bottom of this matter with the Apostle Paul. And that's as far as we're going to go at this moment. But I want to point out that 
the great wrath of the Jews was against Paul here the third time in just a few chapters and yet Paul's delivered by a governor because he has a reputation where he was guilty of nothing that they were accusing him of and he had been without offense and that ought to be the state and character of every one of us that if we were called in question and attacked for any call any reason and they'll make up a reason that we can be as Paul was without offense these chapters here are not the writings of some monk wanting to give us lessons by which to live these writings here are true history history that has value if it's not history recorded in this book it's history of very little value this is history this is a man called in question for his life about following Jesus Christ and here you've seen his answer that he was void of offense before God and men had a clean conscience and behaved himself well so that they couldn't accuse him of anything and in fact those men that had accused him in Jerusalem hadn't even bothered to make the trip to Caesarea because it was going to have to be all made up and fabricated anyway to try to condemn Paul I hope that a book like the book of Acts when we read it we make it as real as we possibly can there was truly an orator named Tertullus there was truly a high priest named Ananias there was truly a Roman governor named Felix they lived and had the same experiences that we do they ate they drank they married they had children just like we do and when we read these scriptural accounts this is history that ought to speak to us as we look at the character of different men because that is my subject this morning is to look at the character of Paul and of Felix right. and I hope that these will these words will become real to us and alive to us in a true sense and not just mere writings of some man wanting to give us some lessons with some stories or just history written by a man who thought it was interesting to put down what happened to Paul but the very words of God and what he would have us know about these trials that Paul underwent in the last seven chapters of the book of Acts. As always, a limit on time precludes a complete review of the context of Acts 24, but I hope I gave you enough for those of you who have read your Bibles that you'll recall the events in Paul's life. The last seven chapters are interesting chapters as he undergoes so many hearings and trials, and trials not just before judges, but trials in the Mediterranean Sea also, uh, is shipwrecked. But I, I trust that now as we come to this 24th chapter, we can look at it as the very words and the descriptions and the sentences and the paragraphs that are here, God wanted us to have them. And it's not just Luke thinking, these are some neat things that happen in Paul's lives in Paul's life and so wrote of them to the early church this is the word of God and the Holy Spirit shows every sentence for us now I want to read from the 23rd verse to the end of the chapter of Acts 24 and he and that's Felix the Roman governor and he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him and after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. 
And as he, that's Paul, reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now may the Lord bless the sense of his word to our hearts. We're thankful that in the 23rd verse, Felix saw enough in Paul that he gave him a centurion and gave him some liberty and protected him and allowed his acquaintances to come and minister to him. We're thankful for that. But we read in the 24th verse that when Felix was come with his wife, who was a Jewess, he wanted to hear Paul, and he asked for Paul. He sent for Paul. Now, can you imagine the Apostle Paul having been held in prison for a while and having the governor say, I want you to come and give me a fuller explanation of faith in Christ. What level of adrenaline rush would the Apostle Paul be under? What uh, level of excitement would he have at being able to come and explain the faith in Christ more fully to this Roman governor? Paul wasn't afraid of anyone. I mean, the Lord had, occurred, had appeared to him in a dream and told him, you're not only going to testify of me in Jerusalem, you're going to get to do it in Rome also. So he was looking forward to that. And here was a little preamble with the Roman governor. And so we have this 24th verse that says, After certain days, Felix and his wife are set down wanting to hear concerning the faith in Christ. And the faith in Christ is our religion. We are Christians with true Christianity. And the faith in Christ is that set of rules and doctrines and teaching that governs what we believe and what we do. And so Felix has asked for it. The faith in Christ. And what does he get? Does he get a lesson in self-esteem? And that the most important thing Felix needs is to learn to love himself so that he can be a better Roman governor and love those under his authority. Does he get a nice fireside chat with the Apostle Paul on his political conduct and some advice on how he can be more merciful to the churches of Christ? Does Paul sit down and entertain him with some prophetic sensationalism of what's about to happen to the Roman Empire and about the little horn of Daniel 7? What about some singing and some entertainment for good old Felix? Show him that the gospel's an exciting thing. Maybe some dancing, some laughter in the spirit. How about some compromise? Now, Felix, what can we agree on here? How about a chalk drawing? How about some childhood stories from Paul's early days? None of that. And, and I, this is important. Felix said, tell me about the faith in Christ. Right. And it's not all sensation. There's no sensationalism. There's no entertainment. It is reasoning about righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. That is my sermon. Right. What is the faith in Christ? Is it studying Bible prophecy and having our 
curiosity tweaked? Is it studying Bible economics? There's nothing wrong with Bible economics in its proper place, but guess where its proper place is? At the top of the list? No. Near the top of the list? I don't think so. Unless you include it in true righteousness, which it would be there. Found. But notice what we get when the Apostle Paul, led by the Spirit of God, is going to give a presentation on the faith in Christ. We should let this example here strongly govern what we do with the Word of God, what we look for, what we expect, what we want, and what we're willing to listen to from this pulpit. We shouldn't be disappointed with the lack of entertainment. We shouldn't be disappointed with the lack of all the other things I mentioned. We should look for reasoning in the Word of God about these three very important matters. I like the fact that it says he reasoned. The Apostle Paul in verse 25, it says he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Most people that go to church, that are religious people, that are in church today, would think of our services as very boring, very boring, very tedious, very difficult to follow. It requires too much effort. This is Paul's manner. I can take you to Acts 17. Paul's manner was to go into a synagogue and reason out of the scriptures. Acts chapter 18 and verse 19. He went into the synagogue in Ephesus and reasoned out of the scriptures. The apostles took the word of God and reasoned with it. That is, connecting scriptures in a logical way to persuade you of something. And that takes work. It's work up here and it's work out there. And anytime you think you can sit in there, in, that, in those chairs, unprepared and relaxed, you're not going to get very much. Because the gospel is to your understanding. That's why it requires a man that's apt to teach. It doesn't require a man that's apt to get into some trance and give something out. It's, it's given to a man to give it who's apt to teach, who studies his whole life to give you something. And it's up to you to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. To prove all things and hold fast that which is good. This reasoning we ought not to resent. We ought to love it. And it does separate us from most people who call themselves Christians. Today they're getting entertainment. And chalk drawings and childhood stories and illustrations and so forth. But very little reasoning in the word of God. And I'm thankful that even a word like that right there can tell us what we ought to look for from this pulpit. Right? Felix Tremble. Now what do most ministers look for as a result of a sermon? Good feelings. The Crystal Cathedral. Robert, what, isn't that what they look for? They want everybody to feel good because if you feel good, you'll come back. You'll come back in the flesh because you felt good there. Felix trembled. Well, didn't Paul know he was going to tremble? He was led by the Spirit. Yes, he did. Then why did Paul do that? Because that is a good effect of the gospel. The problem is you and I don't tremble enough. We don't tremble enough. If we understand righteousness and temperance and judgment to come a little bit, which is all Felix understood, we'll tremble. That is the proper response to the gospel. It's not one of excitement and laughter and wasn't that a great, wonderful sermon and feeling good about yourself. It's trembling before the God 
who defines the righteousness, who expects the temperance, and who will be the judge at the judgment to come. Right. So you know Felix, he trembled. And right then he made a choice. When he was trembling, he made a choice. Right then in that moment, I don't like this. Paul, I'll hear more about this when it's more convenient. He was scared. He was trembling. He was convicted. And he put off hearing any more about it. He got rid of it. Have you ever, in your experience as a Christian, been convicted by a sermon, by a reading, by a testimony, by anything, and went your way and had it blown out of your mind? As you were getting that conviction, you realized, this is good. I'm being convicted. I'm trembling in my soul. I want to change. I will correct these things that have just been condemned. Then you go your way, you turn on a football game, or you go get involved in your business, or you go get involved in Sunday afternoon dinner. And you, you never even remember what happened. It's blown out. We must exercise some diligence in hearing and applying and doing and operating as a result of that trembling and not letting it get away from us. Here's a choice. He didn't like that. I'll hear you when it's more convenient. And what do we end up with, Felix? Communing with Paul, hearing Paul often, and leaving Paul bound. And that's where the Lord leaves Felix. The trembling didn't result in much. Can you think of another entire kingdom of beings that tremble at the knowledge of God and it doesn't bring much the demons, the principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places of this universe the demonic kingdom under Satan they tremble knowing that the Lord is God and he's one God but it doesn't bring about any fruit in their lives I trust that will be different than Felix he reasoned of righteousness, temperance and judgment to come what do you think he reasoned about on the subject of righteousness? What, what would Paul have reasoned with Felix about on the subject of righteousness? Would Paul have told Felix, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Felix, and you're in that number. Have you ever sinned, Felix? And maybe pointed out five or ten that we're all guilty of. If so, you've come short of God's glory, and death is the result. That's why men die. And so he reasoned of righteousness, of legal righteousness. And the lack of legal righteousness being the, the cause of our condemnation, coming condemnation. And so he reasoned with Felix that God hates all workers of iniquity, and the soul that sinneth, it shall die. From Ezekiel chapter 18. But then he would have taught that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that we being justified freely by his grace might obtain the righteousness that is in Christ. And he would have presented the fact that men, by their nature and by their actions, are unrighteous and condemned to an eternity of judgment, but that God has sent Jesus Christ to be a sacrifice for them and to apply his righteousness on their behalf, which is comforting all at the same time. And yet, I know that the Apostle Paul would not have left it there. He would have turned to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29 if he would have had it. And he would have said, He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. 
Without doing righteousness, you have no evidence that you are one of those righteous ones that Jesus Christ has delivered. Right. Because certainly Felix would have wanted to know, who are these that God has delivered? And Paul would have said, they are the ones that do the will of my Father which is in heaven, as Matthew chapter 7 teaches us. And so what Paul would have come to is, Felix, though you're the governor over a conquered people, though you can basically do whatever you think you want to, there is a God that's requiring righteousness out of you, and without which you have no evidence that you're going to be delivered from judgment to come. And so we come to practical righteousness. And what is righteousness? It's doing what is right. You say, that's too simple. Because righteousness has to be some deep subject that would require a theological degree to fully plummet depth. Well, look at Proverbs chapter 12, and let's see if we can't make this simple. Righteousness. Paul, if Paul were here today, and we said, tell us of the faith in Christ, he would reason about righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 5, and I've never done in my past a thorough study of the word and subject and concept righteousness. So I had to do that. And that would require a series. But there's no time for a series on righteousness, so we've got to look at just a few statements about what is righteousness. Proverbs 12, verse 5, the thoughts of the righteous are right. We can get a couple of things from that little statement, that righteousness is what's right, and that righteous men even have right thoughts from that little statement. The thoughts of the righteous are right. They don't even think wrong things. They think right things. Come over to six, chapter 16 in the same book. The book of Proverbs is filled with instruction on righteousness. Proverbs 16 and verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues without righteousness. No, it doesn't say that because it's defining the word righteousness for us. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues without right. What is a better life? Doing what is right with very little or doing what is not right with a whole lot? What is better? The wise man teaches us righteousness and doing what is right is better, is more important, is more valuable than having a whole lot. Practical righteousness is doing what is right. Well, how, how do we know what is right? Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Doesn't the Bible teach us that? Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. So we've got this impelling force in us to tell us that everything I do is right. The natural man does. So what is right? You know there's, a whole, there's whole religious systems today, especially based in Eastern religion, that want to teach you that you have within you the capability of being like God and doing what is right based on your own internal impulses. You know, when I, when I send out applications that have a question that states, on what basis do you make your moral and ethical decisions, and I get back answers like instinct, that's scary. Instinct? But the natural man believes that, because he believes he's good enough to decide and define his own sense of what is right. 
And as long as you're honest with those internal impulses, then you're a good man. But what does the Bible say about what is right? True right and wrong and true righteousness and wickedness are defined by Scripture. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. While you're flipping over there to Deuteronomy chapter 4, remember this text. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for correction, for doctrine, for in reproof, for instruction in righteousness. The Word of God is inspired by God to tell us and define for us what is true righteousness, doing what is right. Paul's reasoning about this with Felix. It's not what you were taught in Rome. It's not what you were taught by your parents. It's what the Word of God declares is right or wrong. And by that judge, God will, decide, God will show or confirm whether we have the evidence of eternal life or not. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 8, here's what fathers are to tell their children. And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? No nation has ever had a codified set of rules of right and wrong like this book. This is the Word of God. It tells us by the Creator of the universe who is infinitely, inherently, always, constantly, eternally righteous of exactly what is right and wrong in every given situation. Amen. Somebody will say, well, the 20th century brings up situations that can't be answered by the Scripture. Try it sometime. This book is perfect, isn't it? Amen. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable that the man of God may be partially ready for the 20th century. Or perfect. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works, which is doing what is right. Oh, we could turn to so many places. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. right. And I hate every false way. There's a righteous man. Whatever God says is right. And I hate everything that's contrary to that. That's practical righteousness. You know, the word of God was not the established criterion for what was right and wrong for Felix. He had his own set of laws to operate by. Roman laws, parental laws, personally hallucinated laws, whatever. But the Word of God is what should bind us. Look at Isaiah 33. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to condense this down to my allotted time, which is a profitable amount of time. But Isaiah chapter 33. I'm going to trust your judgment to remember some passages of Scripture, and I'll refer to them. But listen to this. Here's, here's a description of righteous care, conduct. Isaiah 33, verse 15. He that walketh righteously. That's what we're, that's our, our need to find here is walking righteously and speaketh uprightly. Note, there's the word right twice. He walketh righteously and he speaketh uprightly. Here's, here's the description of this character. He that despiseth the gain of oppressions. Did you know that you can oppress people and get gain? Anybody who's ever worked in an office knows that you can screw somebody or you can stab somebody, or you can step on somebody else. Ever heard those expressions? In order to get gain. The righteous man always is going to do what is right, regardless of gain. He that dis Notice it says he despises the gain of oppression. 
that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes. Get that gift away from me. That would never be influenced by somebody giving him something in order to turn his judgment. That stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood. He would never be ignorant of the cry of someone in need. And shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. He wouldn't shut his eyes. He'd open them wide to see evil and to help. He shall dwell on high. That's the character of the righteous. And those words are comforting. When you're trembling as we get to judgment to come, the words he shall dwell on high are quite comforting. And they are given to the man who acts like verse 15. And verse 15 is righteous character. It is doing what is right in every relationship, in every event, in every circumstance of your life. And we have many of them. You are going to have them today. In your dealings with one another, you're going to have them tomorrow. Business dealings. You know, the little examples that I can think of, quickly. When you're in, in line at the cashier at Winn-Dixie, and she gives you too much change back, what does a righteous man love to do? What does a righteous man not even think about not doing? Giving it back. Do those events happen very often in this? Yes, they do. Events like that happen every day. Events like that are going to happen today. And what will you do? The righteous man does what is right. You know, Jesus said, judge not by appearance, but judge righteous judgment in John chapter 7 and verse 24. A righteous man doesn't get all upset with the appearance of an event. He wants to know the truth of the character of an event, and then he'll make a judgment. He's not hasty. Jesus would teach that as being part of righteousness. Lot was a righteous man. What can we, what can we say good about Lot and his sojourn in Sodom? His soul was vexed. If you can watch and read and think about the wickedness in our country and not be vexed, you're not even lining up with Lot. Right. I'm not even lining up with Lot. Now, where does that put you on the scale of righteousness? It should vex our souls if the soul is righteous, because that conduct did that of Lot. Righteousness is offering a more excellent sacrifice than Cain did. Abel did a better job at worshiping God because he was more concerned about the details of doing it right. You know, Abel had the right Lord in mind. He had the right time and he had the right place. And he brought an offering. Wasn't that good enough? Felix would probably have said, that sounds awfully good to me. But it wasn't good enough. You know, to love, to love righteousness, according to Psalm 45, when it talks about Jesus Christ, is to hate wickedness. So if you're a great lover of righteousness, you're also a great hater of wickedness. You can't have one without the other because they are so diametrically opposed to each other. James chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. If you're known for a temper, and if you get angry easily, when you're angry, there's a slight chance that you're doing the righteousness of God. Look at Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. How do we, how do we find a righteous man? How do we see a righteous man? How, how do we identify one? Oh, there's so many scriptures that we could turn to about doing what is right and the righteous character of God's saints. 
Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 11, even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. Every one of us is observable by man and God as to what we do, it's right or not. That's why Paul could say, I have a conscience void of offense before God and men. Because even a child is known by his doings. We are known by our doings, whether what we do is right or not. Oh, the righteous are a tree of life. When they open their mouths, they're going to feed others and encourage them and build them up and make them better. Did you know that in Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 10, that it even goes this far? A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. You say, does God take care for animals? Yep. Yes. Because a righteous man will even be considerate of the brute creation. He will have a sense of judgment of what is excessive demands placed on an animal and what are reasonable demands placed on an animal. A righteous... You say, does righteousness really extend to something that insignificant? Righteousness extends to everything you're going to do today, tomorrow. What is right? Someone will say, you know, righteousness is just treatment. It's not pot. There's so many verses I could turn to. Did you know that the Israelites came to the prophet Isaiah and said, don't prophesy to us right things. Prophesy and say to us smooth things. Now that's what our nation wants, and that's what we want. We love the smooth things that are pleasant to hear, but we don't want to hear right things all the time. And if you go on and read Isaiah chapter 30, it says, get the law of God away from us by giving us pleasant things to hear rather than right things to do. Someone will say, but how do I know what is right and wrong if you're telling me that every day I run into countless occasions to practice righteousness, how will I know what to do? By having your senses exercised with this book, Ephesians, uh, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. If you'll read it enough, and that's not all the time, the Lord knows that, that's why it's only this big. You say it's huge. It's only this big. Go read the works of men that are trying to write about it. This big. In sets and volumes. And then once you've read one, you better read the next one. It's only this big. If we read it, and we practice it, and we think about it. If you read the newspaper, you think about what the Word of God has to say about this. You have an employee situation, a master situation, a wife situation, a child situation, a landlord situation. What would the Bible say? And actually look up the text. And apply it. Who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Right. You can know what is right in every situation by knowing this book well enough. That's where the answer is to that. Amen. We have got to leave righteousness. But before we do so, let me just give you an example of how it applies right down to all the practical relationships of our life. Ephesians chapter 6. Just listen to it with me. Verse 1. Children. Righteousness applies to you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That is righteousness. So there, God, by his word, has every child by his neck. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
You disobey, you're doing something wrong. You're running right into the face of God. But it goes right on to say, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, for this is right. It's implied there, because everything in this book is right. All thy judgments are right. You can read that about ten times in Psalm 119 alone. Then it goes to husbands. Then it goes to wives. Then it goes to servants. Then it goes to masters. And this is the righteousness that Paul would have reasoned about with Felix and would have pressed the word of God upon Felix and pointed out to Felix that many things he was doing in his life were not right. You know, this righteousness is a, is a distinguishing mark of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we, we had preaching on the Sermon on the Mount as we compared the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees with the righteousness of God's word. Thou shalt not kill. I've never killed anyone. Have you ever been angry with your brother without a cause? Then you're guilty of that commandment and you haven't done what is right. We can learn all that from the word of God. It's a distinguishing mark of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You will, today and tomorrow, and this week if the Lord tarries, have so many occasions to practice righteousness that they cannot be numbered because it is our lives. Right. Every relationship, every transaction, every event, you will make choices. We're all making choices. I'm making choices. Will we choose what is right? He reasoned of righteousness. He also reasoned of temperance. Righteousness is doing what is right in every event, in every circumstance, in every relationship in our lives. Temperance is not abstaining from alcoholic beverages. That's the temperance movement that abused, corrupted. Temperance is Christian self-discipline and moderation. You have passion, you have emotion, you have desires. Temperance is governing those with self-discipline or discipline and denial so that you please God right. by governing them and keeping them within bounds. It is denying ourselves by diligent exercise. You know, for a conquering governor, can you imagine Felix? He's been shipped from Rome over to Judea. How much temperance do you think he needs to exercise? You know, he might have been temperate in a low-fat diet so that he could have maintained his Roman physique as he walked around. He might have been temperate in his use of time so that he could have been known as the most efficient governor in the Roman Empire. But was he temperate in his passions and in his desires and in the lusts of his flesh that are condemned by the word of God? And that's the big difference. Who cares if you're temperate in eating a low-fat diet relative to being temperate in the other bodily appetite that God condemns so strictly in his Bible. You know, God never, God never in his word said anything wrong about being 20 pounds overweight. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 to look at a, some references to this word temperance. This, this is a Bible word. The first time we find it in the New Testament is the verse that we've looked at this morning, Acts 24, verse 25. And he reasoned, as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance. Temperance is discipline, denial of your appetite, passions, 
desires in your life. Titus chapter 2, speaking of the gospel of God in verse 11, we come to verse 12 that says, the gospel teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That verse right there tells us that without temperance we can't be righteous. Because we've got to deny ourselves in order to do what is right. Because you're going to have a way in your heart that seems right to you with the ends thereof or the ways of death. You're going to want to do what you think, but you have to do what God said. And to make that decision is to deny and cut off and mortify the one to do the other. Temperance is therefore required. It's mentioned here as denying ungodliness and denying worldly lust. No generation has ever faced such an onslaught of temptation for worldly lust. I didn't say no generation was as wicked as this one. It's just that the means we have to put those worldly lusts in front of our eyes all day long has never existed like it does now. The need for temperance is therefore greater than ever before. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. You know, when we talk about self-discipline, we talk about self-denial, it comes down to killing things that we want. Romans chapter 8 and verse 13, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. If you let your flesh live for all the things that your flesh wants, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. The character of those that will survive the judgment to come are those that put to death the deeds of the body. Mortify is related to the word mortician. You know what a mortician does, and now you know what the word mortify means. Mortify means to put to death. A mortician is someone that deals with the dead. Mortify means to put it to death. If you let your flesh and their lust live, you're not practicing temperance. True temperance is killing it. You know what Jesus would say? You know how plain he would make it? In Matthew chapter 5, when he said, because the Pharisees would say, I haven't committed adultery, therefore I'm innocent of the seventh commandment. Jesus would say, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And I say unto you, that if your right eye offend thee, pluck it out. And if your right hand offend thee, Cut it off. That's how Jesus would describe temperance. That if there are temptations, circumstances, that lead you to sin, cause you to be tempted, put them to death. Cut them off. Whatever they might be. Change a job. Drop a friendship. Change a habit. Cut out certain programs. Stop certain subscriptions. Etc., etc., Put it to death. Cut it. You say, but it, it's important to me. It's valuable to me. Is your right eye? Pluck it. Is your right hand needful? Cut it off. It's how the Savior would describe this self-discipline. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You know, I wish this self, the self-love movement would spend more time on self-discipline rather than self-love and self-esteem because self-discipline is biblical. First yeah. Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in the race run all, course, 
everybody that's in a race is running. But one receiveth the prize, only the winner gets the prize. So run that ye may obtain. The Christian experience, and Paul's telling Felix this, Felix, to be a Christian, you've got to run like a man in a race. There's lots running, but only one gets the prize. And so you should run your Christian life like a man trying to win a race. And every man that striveth for the mastery, every man who wants to be a winner, is temperate in all things. Every Olympic athlete is temperate in all things. That means highly disciplined in all things. They eat the appropriate amount at the appropriate time in the appropriate way. They sleep at the appropriate time for the appropriate length of time. They exercise for the appropriate duration of exercise, the appropriate intensity of exercise. They are disciplined in all things in order to be a winner. And Paul is telling Felix here that that is the way we should run. Now, they're doing it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. And Paul goes on to say, I therefore so run. That's the way I run my Christianity. He's not talking about a morning jog. He's talking about how he's going to deal with John Mark, with Luke, with Barnabas, with church members, with Ananias, with Felix. He's talking about in everything he encounters in his life, he is going to run in a highly disciplined way of doing what is right by denying himself and being temperate. Right. I therefore so run to be a winner, not as uncertainly. I'm not running through life vaguely, just letting things happen to me. And oh, I shouldn't have said that. Or I shouldn't have done that. That's too late. You've already blown it. Paul didn't operate that way. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. He doesn't throw a punch when he's not sure of it landing. But I keep under my body. I keep my body under and bring it into subjection. It obeys me because I am temperate, I am disciplined, and I have trained it to be disciplined, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. That's temperance. Temperance is a proof of our sonship. Galatians chapter 5 lists it as a, as a fruit of the Spirit. Temperance is listed right in there with love, joy, and peace. Temperance. Second Peter chapter 1, how do you make your calling election sure? Temperance is listed in that list of eight things there that, are, that describe the character of the righteous that Jesus Christ will certainly deliver. Temperance should be visible to all men. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5 says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. And that moderation is a word of discipline. It's another. It's a synonym for temperance. Let your temperance, let your moderation, let your controlled approach to life be known unto all men. Do you practice temperance with your mind? No. The Pharisee will let his mind run. That's why Jesus went after it. Whosoever looketh on a woman, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, as long as they hadn't killed or committed adultery outwardly, they thought they were innocent. Do you show temperance in your mind, your thoughts, your anger, your mood, your impulsiveness, your emotions, your passions? Are they disciplined to always do what is right? But always we have a conscience void of offense before God. That's what Paul's telling Felix. He's reasoning. Is that the way you behave, Felix? You practice temperance. Relative to your television, my television, your tongue, my tongue. When, when that thing moves in there and speaks and says and cuts and hurts, 
Are we governing it and disciplining it when you want to say something that would be foolish? And you remember, Ephesians chapter 5, oh, foolish talking is condemned by the word of God. And so you hold it in, even though you want to be the life of the party, and say a joke. How temperate are you with your tongue? How temperate am I with my tongue? You're eating, you're drinking, your time, your finances, your reading, your friends. Are all those choices made in a disciplined approach to do what God would want you to do and deny what your flesh would want you to do? Paul reasoned with him of righteousness and of temperance and of judgment to come. Did you know that Felix was going to keep an appointment? Paul told Felix, It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 No, Felix. Oblivion is not your lucky escape from this life. Annihilation of the Jehovah's Witnesses doesn't cut it with the Word of God. There is going to be a day of reckoning and accounting where every time you've been unrighteous and done what is wrong, you'll give an account of it. Where every time you were intemperate and did not govern yourself to please me, you'll give an account of it. Judgment to come. You know the wise man when he wrote Ecclesiastes 12, we know verse 13 well, don't we? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For, is the next verse. For, God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That is the summary of life. We like to memorize the first half. It's not quite... It doesn't cause quite as much trembling. But if we memorize the whole summary of life, it's right. verses 13 and 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. This subject, like a number in Scripture, but this subject maybe more than others, is almost impossible for us to grasp because there is no authority on this planet that is even close to what I'm describing. God shall bring every work into judgment. Poor Felix, if he thought he was governor, wouldn't have to be held accountable. I read in Revelation chapter 20 that when John saw the judgment of Jesus, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, he said, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Are you glad that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Amen. You sang it like you were this morning. I hope you are. I hope I am. But do we understand the full ramifications of him rising from the dead? This world, they give the most lip service. They don't, they don't give them heart service, but they give them lip service at this time of year because they like him in a manger. They like him in swaddling clothes. They like him nursing. They like him helpless. Let me tell you something about his resurrection, which they don't celebrate in the spring either. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Verse, let's get verse 30, because this, Paul would have said this to Felix, because Felix was a pagan. And the times of this ignorance, Acts 17, 30, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day. And this is an appointment you'll keep. In the which he will judge the world 
in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. God has appointed a day. You will keep that appointment. There is nothing you can do to avoid that appointment. Right. You will keep it on time. God has appointed a day, and he's ordained a man to be judge of the quick and the dead. That's the living and the dead. And he wanted you to be have some assurance of that. Don't, aren't you excited that he gave you some assurance that that day is coming? That should cause some trembling. God wants you to be assured of that fact, so he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus Christ is that ordained judge of the quick and the dead. And there will be a day of judgment. He's appointed the day, he's ordained the man, and he's given assurance by raising that man from the dead. Jesus Christ is not in a manger, and that's why in the New Testament there's nothing for us to remember him being in a manger. There's no ordinance of the New Testament church whereby we have little uh, childhood plays up here with uh, Sarah, you know, being rocked in some little cradle and people dressed in blankets with sticks looking like shepherds in them. Did you ever do that in your lifetime? Men love Jesus there. Who wants to think about him raised from the dead to be a judge with an appointed day in the which a verse like this is going to be true? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Wherefore we labor, here's Paul talking about his personal life and that of the apostles, that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Is that your labor? Will that be your labor today? And it is labor. Serving Jesus Christ acceptably is not easy. Serving Jesus Christ acceptably does not come naturally. It requires temperance. Did you hear Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 9? That's hard work. See, I'm just not up to it. Then think about the reward. I don't necessarily mean a good reward. Think about the reward of judgment. It's just not missing a crown. They have to give an account of a life that was in slothfulness and foolishness because Paul goes on to say in verse 10 here's why we labor here's why we labor to be found to be accepted of him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ now there be many who take the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and unconditional salvation and rest it to teach that we shall never be brought into judgment and that is a heresy that we are now separated from by being in this congregation. Because Paul said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He didn't say, they, the lost, shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he didn't say we might, he said we must. And he said all appear, appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. There will be a reckoning and accounting and a giving of account of everything we've done in our body before the judgment seat of Christ, even if you are one of God's elect. And that subject's been preached on before in its entirety. And while it will be a sad day if we have neglected the grace of God that's been given to us, 
We will be judged righteous for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but it will be an accounting we will wish we hadn't had to give. And it will be an accounting that we will wish Jesus Christ had not had to make. This, this statement is mentioned throughout the New Testament. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. For men shall give an account of every idle word. Matthew chapter 12. Every idle word. Guard that tongue. What's that called? Temperance. Guard the tongue. Say what is right. If it's not right, don't say it. But Paul said, therefore we labor, that we may be accepted of him. In Acts chapter 24 and verse 25 it says, As he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. Most men don't want that response from the gospel. Most men that are preaching it don't want that response in their hearers. Most hearers don't want that response in their own hearts. Felix trembled. Paul knew that he was going to tremble. Paul wanted him to tremble. Paul fought his trembling. And so it should be with us. Because look at the 11th verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What terror? The judgment seat of Christ, where we may receive the things that are in our body. That isn't the eternal punishment for the things that are in our body. That's an accounting of the things that are in our body. And if the name is not found in the book of life, then you will receive the punishment for the things that are in your body. But if your name is found in the book of life, you'll be saved. And believe me, in heaven, it will be entirely, you'll be singing praises only to Jesus Christ for your name in the book of life. Right. But notice Paul in verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And that's what he was trying to do with Felix, to persuade Felix to follow that way. Not just to hear more about that way, to tweak his curiosity, but to follow that way. And that way is faith in Christ. That way is Jesus Christ is Lord, and I'm going to follow him and do what he has commanded me to do. That's the Christian religion. Felix trembled. The commitment, the cost, was too much. The fear. And he reacted with the fear of a devil. And the devils fear God, and they fear the Lord Jesus Christ. But they run from him, and it never works righteousness in their hearts. Adam and Eve feared God. They went and hid in the trees. The true fear of God is that that falls at God's feet and repents and says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Paul did that. What a difference. Do you remember that? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That's true fear of God because it results in proper action, not in running away. The devils tremble, but they bring forth no fruit. Brethren, you know, speak to you, but I speak to all of us, speak to all of us, does thinking about righteousness always, temperance, and judgment to come cause trembling in your soul? If it doesn't, why not? If it doesn't cause trembling in your soul, why not? Say, because I know that Jesus died for my sins. Oh, but that didn't stop. Paul was still laboring that he might be accepted of him. He wasn't resting in a legal salvation without applying that legal salvation fully. Now, in the present time, how I wish I trembled more. You know why we don't tremble? You're so filled with this world that what I just said, too hard to believe. We, have fed, we feed the wrong man too much. 
The new man likes to tremble. If it doesn't cause you to tremble, why not? If it does cause you a little bit of trembling, and I trust that the Lord used me in some little way to cause a little trembling in your heart, a little in mine, if yes, if Felix trembled, will it bring forth any more fruit than Felix had? What will you and what will I do in righteousness, temperance, in the light of judgment to come? Any more fruit than Felix? Are we just going to tremble a little, go our way, and blow it out the other ear? You see, what that happens so many times, and listen, I tell you, it happens so many times. Conviction, and then losing it. We're feeding the wrong man. If you'll spend time reading this, which is righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, and considering what you've heard this morning, and asking the Lord to bring it again to your memories, it will bear the fruit of righteousness by those that exercise themselves by it. I, I trust. Right. Paul said his whole purpose was in the day when they all stood before Jesus Christ that every man that he had ever encountered could be presented perfect. And this morning, for you and for me, I hope that when we stand before Jesus Christ, we can be found accepted of him in a very positive, profitable way. That we've been faithful. We've fought a good fight. We've kept the faith. As the Apostle Paul was able to say when his time of death drew near. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word to the profit of your souls and mine. Amen.